As linguist John McWhorter once said, one of the last remaining prejudices that we can openly express is linguistic prejudice. Hi, I'm Milton Allen Turner, and this week I'm discussing the intricacies of black language, the myths surrounding the criticism of black language or black English or robotics, and the need to combat what Dr. April Baker Bell calls anti-black linguistic racism. Welcome to this week's episode of Worldviews. Linguist John McWhorter told host Stephen Colbert in a 2018 interview on The Late Show what he considered to be the importance of the study of linguistics. McWhorter asserted that, quote, we have this last remaining prejudice that we can express openly with no censure whatsoever, that two out of three people are using the language wrong in some scientifically provable way. And it just isn't true. But it can be really hard to see that. One of these persistent prejudices is that black speech or black English is inferior to white or quote unquote mainstream English. Renee Blake and Kimberly Baxter note in a 2021 Mental Floss article entitled 10 Things to Know About African-American Language that, quote, African-American language is used as a proxy for racism against black people. In spite of its cultural popularity and despite the fact that it is a language that is systematic and rule-governed in its own right, African-American language has been used as a proxy for discrimination against its speakers everywhere, from the classroom to the job and housing markets. African-American language speakers who speak their language are, quote, articulate in their language. When one speaks of a small group of African-Americans as being articulate while speaking mainstream white American English, it belies the fact that African-American language speakers have and continue to be accomplished and make great contributions, unquote. Unfortunately, as Dr. April Baker Bell reminds us in her 2020 book, Linguistic Justice, Black Language, Literacy, Identity, and Pedagogy, quote, linguistic racism is normal and an everyday experience for most linguistically marginalized people of color living in the United States. In fact, it's so normal that it's difficult to address because it's not acknowledged as a form of racism. And although linguistic racism is socially constructed, like racism, it is permanent and ubiquitous in United States society. Dr. Baker Bell defines this as anti-black linguistic racism. She deliberately uses the terms black language and white mainstream English, quote, to foreground the relationship between language, race, anti-black racism, and white linguistic supremacy. Nowhere was this relationship more evident to me than in the furor over Ebonics in 1996. There seemed to be no way of escaping a discussion of it. 
everyone was talking about it, or at least making reference to what they thought it was. As a linguist, I was disappointed at how many outright lies were being circulated as, quote, fact in this debate, and how little the truth actually mattered to most participants. My pulse raced when National Public Radio's Ray Suarez billed one of his Talk of the Nation programs of that year as the, quote, last ebonic show you'll never need, unquote. But my heart sank upon the introduction of Jack E. White, who wrote a Time article featuring a, quote, debate on ebonics between the kingfish and buckwheat. Now, to Mr. White's credit, he did have buckwheat speaking in so-called standard English and pointed out that these, quote, black characters were truly created and scripted by white writers. But by the time local morning radio talk show hosts had jumped into the fray by inviting white callers to give ebonics lessons to their listeners and front page articles in the Cleveland Plain Dealer continued to perpetrate these inaccuracies, I'd had enough. When was someone who knew something about linguistics, or at the very least, about language, going to explain what ebonics really was? When were the commentators, reporters, and pundits going to stop referring to it as a new idea or invention? And why was the Oakland School Board hardly ever mentioned during these arguments, except as a parenthetical reference, which served as a springboard for wild diversions? After all, I kept hearing from blacks and whites alike. This was a fundamentally silly argument to begin with, wasn't it? Common sense tells you that I don't know nothing, you be tired, and he going are incorrect, lazy, and outright sloppy forms of communication, right? Wrong. Inherently, unequivocally, and invariably wrong. Alas, if only common sense were truly so common. Historically, quote, common sense has told us that the world is flat, that the earth is the center of the universe, that five pennies are better than one quarter, and that a pound of feathers is lighter than a pound of lead, and that a bowling ball dropped from the top of a building falls faster than a baseball released at the same time. It also tells us that there are, quote, good languages and, quote, bad languages, and that two negatives make a positive, and that illogical speech is at best the sign of a poor upbringing, or at worst, the sign of an illogical or an inferior mind. What had been lacking in most Ebonics debates to date had been a truly empirical examination of the facts, not of what people would like them to be. No matter how much you may want the bowling ball to hit the sidewalk before the baseball, it's just not going to happen. Why not? Because after seeing the same result time and time again, we're forced to conclude that both objects are being pulled at a constant rate by some unseen force that we call gravity. All languages and their varieties, or dialects, 
are controlled by a similar unseen force that we call grammar. This grammar isn't necessarily the grammars you're taught in school, which tend to be prescriptive. Those tell us what we ought to do, or most often, what we should not do. You may be taught not to split an infinitive, but no one teaches you not to put determiners or prepositions after the noun. Why haven't you ever been told by a teacher, you must say, on the corner, and not corner the on? Obviously, because no one ever says, corner the on. That's just common sense, right? Well, scientifically, we have to ask ourselves, why not? If someone can make a sloppy or illogical or random error like, he been gone, then the misproduction of the phrase corner the on should be of no surprise. Why would the latter be any sloppier or more illogical than the former? Because there has to be some force, some rule, some grammar that will allow the former, but not the latter. These unconscious rules, which restrict what a native speaker might and cannot under any circumstances say, make up a linguistic grammar. These rules that govern the different dialects may vary. (laughs) That's why the dialects are different. But all of them have rules. Hence, they're all logical and systematic. Many articles, such as Patrice M. Jones' front-page story in the Sunday, March 9, 1997, Cleveland Plain Dealer, typify abonics as lacking the verb to be, only to say that the same verb is misused only a few lines later. Word endings are said to be chopped off, and we're left with the impression that these forms are the haphazard, illogical butchering of the, quote, standard vernacular. There couldn't possibly be any rules to this doubly negated mumble-jumble, but there are. And in fact, these rules are often very similar to those that govern the Queen's English. In Ebonics, there is indeed a verb to be, although its absence shouldn't in itself be surprising, because many languages, like Arabic and Russian, eliminate or limit its use, deeming that it's unnecessary. In Black English, the form to be in the sentences, he is sleeping, or he is a doctor, can be dropped through the process of ellipsis to become he sleeping or he a doctor. This is the same process in which he is at home becomes he's home and I think that it's raining becomes I think it's raining in standard English. But not every occurrence of to be can be dropped. Only the contracted forms can be ellipsed. He is sleeping can become he's sleeping. And he is a doctor can become he's a doctor. But since how beautiful you are cannot become how beautiful you are, and it's cold outside, isn't it? Cannot become it's cold outside, snot it. 
Therefore, predictably, how beautiful you and it's cold outside, not it, are both impossible structures in black language. After all, have you ever heard anyone sing how great thou instead of how great thou art during a Sunday church service? In standard English, the verb to be usually marks the tense of a verb. However, in black language, it often marks its aspect or mode. Ms. Jones's article erroneously stated that he is going would become he be going in a bonics. Instead, it would become, as we've seen, he going through ellipsis. He be going is a different sentence, meaning he goes all the time, showing the habitual aspect of the action. Romance languages marked this distinction in the past with the use of the imperfect tense versus the preterite or the passé Black language extends this usage to create a present imperfect, if you will. Similarly, the durative aspect of a verb can be marked by showing he been going, meaning he has been going for quite some time, which is not a misuse of the past progressive as is sometimes stated, meaning he was going or he went. The famous argument against double negatives that two negatives make a positive has absolutely no basis in logic. After all, do two wrongs make a right? This assertion was attributed to a grammar written by Robert Loth, but it wasn't supported by grammar or logic or science, but rather by math. Loth used as evidence against the structure that the product of two negatives makes a positive. In other words, negative two times negative two equals positive four. Oddly enough, however, he could have used mathematics to prove the opposite because the sum of two negatives is a negative. Negative two plus negative two equals negative four. (laughs) He just liked multiplication better than addition. Besides, I've yet to meet anyone who truly believes upon hearing, I don't know nothing about physics, that the speaker is or intends the claim to be an expert in the field. Or that upon hearing, I ain't got no money, believes that the person is saying, my wealth rivals Bill Gates's. The substitution of the TH sound for a D is often shown with the proof of illogic for black language or abonics. But in truth, there are actually two TH sounds in the standard English. The TH sound, like in bath or thin, and the THE sound in bathe or these. They is often converted to day in black language. But bathe does not become bade, but rather becomes bathe with a V sound. Bath doesn't become bad with a B sound, but rather bath with an F sound. And thin doesn't become din with a D sound, but rather tin with a T sound. If these changes were truly illogical, why wouldn't thin become din or vin 
or Finn, or for that matter, even Jin or Min or Pin. Because there are rules that determine where the substitutions can occur and which sounds will replace the originals. The becomes D, the D sound, only at the beginning of a word. Between vowels or at the end of a word, it becomes the or the V sound. The choice of D, the D sound, or the, the V sound is not accidental. They share many qualities with the the sound. All of them are voiced, meaning your vocal folds vibrate. And they're all pronounced either on the teeth or on the lips. While the, the V sound, and the are also fricative, meaning there's a free flow of air as opposed to de, the D sound, which is the stop and has a complete blockage. Likewise, th, the T sound t, and the F sound th are the voiceless counterparts of the, the D sound d, and the V sound v. Th, t, and th are exactly the same sounds as the, d, and v. The only difference being in the first group, your vocal cords don't vibrate. Even mistakes or slips of the tongue are rule-bound and therefore highly predictable. A possible mispronunciation or spoonerism for keychain in English is chicane, where the initial sounds of both words are reversed. But the initial ch sound in chain is actually an affricate meaning it's the combination of two separate sounds pronounced as one. Ch is actually the sound of a T, T, and the sh, SH, and SHU pronounced as a single sound. In slips of the tongue, English speakers automatically move these two sounds together to mispronounce keychain as chicane. However, a French speaker who does not recognize ch as a single sound over though they can pronounce it in words like chow or mach, they hear it as two sounds, t and sh, and could theoretically mispronounce keychain as tikashane. No English speaker, no matter how uneducated, deficient, lazy, or inferior one might presume him or her to be, could ever make this mistake. Our rules of phonology just won't allow it. There are no such things as simple or primitive languages. All languages and dialects can convey any and all possible and even impossible messages. There is no idea that can be expressed in standard English that cannot be expressed in Ebonics or black language, or vice versa. Just like there's no idea that can be expressed in Arabic, but not expressed in French. Now granted, some renderings may be wordier or more circuitous in variety A versus variety B, but there are just as many cases where the reverse is true. The bottom line is, one way or another, the idea is expressed. All dialects are equal in their complexity. If you ask the child in any language to give you an example of a subordinate clause 
and a coordinating conjunction, they'd probably just give you a blank stare. But even a child of Ebonics can hear a sentence like, this is the cat that ate the rat that stole the cheese that blah, 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 in the house that Jack built, and can perfectly understand who's doing what to whom, and add as many new elements as they please, or you have the patience to endure. So why then, in the face of this well-documented scientific evidence, does there persist this notion that this is a form of speech that is inferior, nonsensical, and unintelligent? Are there great hordes out there who still believe that a bowling ball will crash first on the flat earth of our geocentric universe? Well, the unfortunate truth of the matter is that certain fallacies are preferred over reality. Jeffrey Pullum, in his essay, The Great Eskimo Vocabulary Hoax, discusses the prevalence of the myth that Eskimos have hundreds of words for snow, in spite of the research by Cleveland State University's Dr. Laura Martin to the contrary. In fact, even if the, quote, Eskimos, a truly precise term right up there with Africans and Indians, did indeed have a wide variety of terms for snow, it shouldn't be a very interesting or shocking bit of information. Try substituting Eskimos and snow with botanists and flowers, or printers and thoughts, or mechanics and tools, or dancers and moves. And I predict that the ensuing lecture would elicit little from the audience more than spitballs and snores. It's the exotic nature of this perceived blubber-eating, nose-rubbing, ice-dwelling, wife-swapping peoples that makes this so-called information notable. Finding this information to be false for some people is like learning there's no Santa Claus. They'd rather live in a world where he does exist. Now, by this time, physics scholars are probably pointing out that the bowling ball example that I've given only works within a perfect vacuum. Wind, air pressure, and a myriad of other variables can influence the actual descent of a bowling ball or a baseball, in my example. And certainly, we do not live in a vacuum, which is fortunate for us because, as I'm told, it would be pretty damn hard to breathe. But neither do our languages. When we use language, we do so in specific contexts. Language is influenced by our perceptions, our preferences, and unfortunately, our prejudices. If we approve of a group, we approve of their language. If we disapprove of a group, we dislike their language. In the United States, wealthy, northern, metropolitan, white, suburban, and male are preferred over poor, southern, rural, black, inner city, or female. So it's not surprising that wealthy, northern, metropolitan, white, suburban, and male speech patterns are favored over poor, southern, rural, black, inner city, or female speech patterns. 
Dr. April Baker Bell points out in her book, Linguistic Justice, Black Language, Literacy and Identity and Pedagogy, quote, people's language experiences are not separate from their racial experiences. Indeed, the way a black child's language is devalued in school reflects how black lives are devalued in the world. Similarly, the way a white child's language is privileged and deemed the norm in schools is directly connected to the invisible ways that white culture is deemed normal, neutral, and superior in the world. Language, like any other symbolic system, has a shape, its morphology, phonology, and syntax, a meaning, its semantics, and a usage, its pragmatics. These elements should not be studied in isolation. For example, a stop sign has a shape, a red octagon, a meaning, pedestrians and motorized vehicles ought to come to a complete stop and look both ways before continuing to an intersection, and a usage. Is a stop sign valid if, for example, someone hangs it on the wall or ceiling of a dorm room? The power of pragmatics is evident to all students who've ever asked a teacher, can I go to the bathroom? And received an IC, I don't know, can you? As a reply, they all know deep down that they have indeed made a request. In technical terms, they've invoked the felicity condition of an illocutionary act. If you ask something of someone, they have to be able to do it or be in a position to allow you to do it. I've never dared use this response with a student, especially upon hearing several years ago that a student once unzipped his pants and urinated in the classroom trash can to prove that indeed he could go to the bathroom. But I have to keep in mind that maybe this never happened at all. It could be one of those urban myths defying eradication, like the Eskimos' hundreds of words for snow. The social aspect of language is what makes this such an impassioned debate. Language defines who we are, who we perceive ourselves to be, and how others perceive us, often unconsciously. If language is not used to communicate messages with other people, then what's its value? The social contexts in which these conversations take place are the air in which language breathes, flourishes, and evolves. Another common linguistic myth is that by putting children in a room full of foreign language tapes or CDs or videotapes, that they'll automatically learn every language they hear. Mm, not really. Children will naturally acquire, or in other words, teach themselves all the languages in which they have active participation with real live speakers. Mere exposure isn't enough. The social interaction between the child and the speakers is critical. And the notion that this acquisition is effortless is also under question, considering that a child would have had over 9,000 hours of active interaction with other native speakers by the age of five. In a typical high school or college classroom setting, 
That would be the equivalent of 67 years worth of study. Ebonics was never new and is not a fad. It's been well studied and named Black English or African American English or African American Vernacular English or Black English Vernacular or Urban English or Black Language. It was the choice of the name Ebonics by the Oakland Unified School District's board in 1996 that had a lot to do with the public's reaction to this question. The image of ebony and its connotations of black pride and Afrocentrism had much to do with the spark that ignited this argument. Trinidadian writer Earl Lovelace has said, quote, our experience has had as its central theme not slavery and colonialism, as is often thought, but the struggle against enslavement and colonialism. I would submit that the black or African-American experience is similarly not rooted in slavery and racism, but in the struggle against enslavement and racism. The passion that has fueled the debate over black language and abonics is rooted in that same struggle. Chris Rock once asserted that there are two ways to speak. The way to talk if you want to get a job and, quote, that other way if you don't want to get a job. This underscores how tightly our language is tied to our personal outlooks on our place in the world and our opportunities for advancement and success within it. Our choice of linguistic style can either identify us as one who's gotten over, crossed over, or never given up the fight or defied the powers that be. The use of the standard can mark one as proper, stuck up, or wannabe, while the use of dialect can show that one is real people or down to earth. Our language is not a function of our ethnicity, but of our identity, given or chosen. This choice can and does change over time, but also from situation to situation. Wanting to belong can be one of the strongest obstacles against the acquisition of a new dialect. The power over their own words may be the sole power that many of the disenfranchised feel that they have left. Whatever variety of English we speak or espouse, proper or real, standard or non-standard, merely wishing away the problem won't work. As with infants, extended exposure to a, quote, preferred dialect is not enough. Consider the logic of this approach. If we make sure that our students only hear, quote, standard English and erase or forbid any of the usage, they'll all speak, quote, perfect English. I don't care if you locked yourself in a room and watched Jethro Bodine or Archie Bunker 24-7, you wouldn't magically, mystically, automatically start talking like either one of them. Some mavens have even gone so far as to speculate that due to the influence of mass media, American regional dialects are steadily bleeding into the Midwestern dialect, and someday everyone will speak the same dialect. Texans, Atlantans, Brooklynites, and Appalachians have listened to different people all over the years, and their speech patterns have not altered. 
the intent of the Oakland School Board was never to do away with the instruction of standard English. To the contrary, they were looking for better ways to lead their students towards its acquisition in the face of declining verbal scores. They planned to teach Ebonics to the teachers so that the teachers could better understand the complexities of their students and the impediments towards their students' furthered education. This move was not without precedent. The Conference on College Composition and Communication of the National Council of Teachers of English has officially endorsed the policy of a student's right to their own language and dialects since 1972, while simultaneously supporting the acquisition of a standard variety by all students. The Linguistic Society of America also recognized Ebonics in Black English and supported the Oakland Resolution. These initiatives were intended to, above all, uphold the student's dignity while providing him or her with the best possible chances for future success. We need all students to make informed choices about the appropriateness of certain linguistic varieties in specific situations without belittling them. The lasting influence of Loth's grammar shows us, if nothing else, the strength of people's desires to effectively manipulate situations to achieve their own goals. If we're constantly telling students that they're illogical, deficient, and essentially stupid because of their failure to abandon, you be tired, in favor of, you are normally tired, are we really encouraging them to switch dialects? If the detractors of this supposedly crude and unordered speech can't even make fun of it without getting it all wrong, how seriously will students take them? Through their apathy, the quote experts have effectively negated the student's very existence. The recognition of the validity of a language variety is essential in acknowledging the worth of its individual speakers. Dr. April Baker-Bell argues for and presents a framework for an anti-racist black pedagogy. This is intended to counter eradicationist and respectability language pedagogies. Eradicationist language pedagogies maintain that, quote, black language is not acknowledged as a language and gets treated as linguistically, morally, and intellectually inferior. The goal of this approach is to eradicate black language from students' linguistic repertoires and to replace it with white mainstream English. Respectability pedagogies maintain that, quote, black language is acknowledged as a language that should be validated, affirmed, and respected. However, the end goal of this approach is simply to use black language as a bridge to learn white mainstream English. Dr. Baker Bell criticizes these approaches, saying that she has, quote, her teachers use exceptionalism discourse with black students by telling them that they can be the next successful or rich black person such as Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, Oprah, if they would just speak white mainstream English. 
But as she points out, do we ever tell white students to code switch so that they can be the next Steve Jobs, Ellen DeGeneres, or Donald Trump? Anti-racist black language pedagogy in contrast to the eradicationist or or respectability pedagogies places black language, quote, at the center of this approach to critically interrogate white linguistic hegemony and anti-black linguistic racism. The end goal of this approach is to dismantle anti-black linguistic racism and students' internalization of it. Ebonics or black language is not strictly a black thing. No one speaks the elusive standard English natively. We all seem to know what it is, and yet no one can actually clearly define it. All of us speak idiolects that overlap in varying degrees with the standard. All students of all colors and backgrounds have to learn to bridge the difference between their own speech and the standard. Some of our bridges are just longer than others. And some of us are viewed better based off of our native dialects and others as inferior. Unless we as a country are ready to tackle the real issues of education, racism, and socioeconomic inequalities, the debate over ebonics or black language will only lead to more ingenuously insidious ways of hiding our collective heads in the sand. The next time urban English vernacular, BEV, ebonics, or black language returns to the national spotlight, I might as well put my money on the bowling ball. My common sense tells me it's got a 50-50 shot over the baseball. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this week's show and that you found something in it to spark a deeper conversation leading to greater understanding. I'm Milton Allen Turner, and I invite you to join me again next week for more Worldview.